It is 8 p.m. on October 21st, 2020. You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review, where law students discuss current topics through the lens of law review articles. I'm joined today by our panel. I'll ask each to introduce themselves in one sentence and answer the question, congratulations, you just made partner and all your loans are paid off. What car are you driving to the office tomorrow? Start with Shinley. Hi, everybody. I'm Shinley Kent, uh, current 1L at Dickinson Law. If my loans are paid off tomorrow, um, I probably would still keep my 2015 Honda Accord. Hey, folks. My name is Seth Trott. I'm also a 1L at Dickinson Law. Um, I uh, I recently upgraded from a 93 Crown Vic to a uh, 2020 CX-30 by Mazda, and I love it. Uh, and it has working windows, so I'd probably just keep driving that one. That sounds uh, like good choices on your part. I'll admit that if I had just made partner and my loans were paid off, I'd be out buying myself a Porsche 911 because I've wanted one for years. Nice. <laughs> Reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists' present, former, or future employers, or other any other entity. The contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And last, an announcement. If you would like a Law Review Squared sticker for your laptop, they're three-inch square, send an email to lexclava, L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com with your mailing address, um, and we'll send one out to you free, and we will not send your email address to anybody else. And now I'll turn the episode over to Shenley, who picked the article and will lead the discussion. Shenley? Thank you, Tony. Um I uh, wanted to pick an article since we're so close uh, to Election Day, kind of uh, talk about uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and I found a really good article um, from Ellen Katz uh, from William & Mary College. Uh, this was published in 2018, and the title is Voting Rights in the Race to the Bottom. Um, so I just wanted to give a little bit of background uh, uh, to our listeners about the Voting Rights Act. Um, so I'll just take a, a just a couple minutes just to kind of give this information. Um, so the article um, that Ms. Katz wrote uh, focuses on uh, Section 2 and 5 and preclearances from the uh, Voting Rights Act, um, which we might um, refer to as v- VRA in this interview. Uh, but the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is a landmark piece of federal legislation in the U.S. that prohibits racial discrimination in voting. It was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson during the height of the Civil Rights Movement on August 6, 1965, and Congress later amended the act five times to expand its protections. Designed to enforce the voting rights guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution, the act secured the right to vote for racial minorities throughout the country, especially in the South. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the act is considered to be the most effective piece of federal civil rights legislation ever enacted in the country. The act contains numerous provisions that regulate elections. The act's general provisions provide nationwide protections for voting rights. Section two is a general provision that prohibits every state and local government from imposing any voting law that results in discrimination against racial or language minorities. Other general provisions specifically outlaw literacy tests and similar devices that were historically used to disenfranchise racial minorities. The act also contains special provisions that apply to only certain jurisdictions. A core special provision is the Section 5 preclearance requirement, which prohibits certain jurisdictions from implementing any change affecting voting without receiving pre-approval from the U.S. Attorney General or the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. That 
change does not discriminate against protected minorities. Another special provision requires jurisdictions containing significant language minority populations to provide bilingual ballots and other elected election materials. Section 5 and, the, and most other special provisions apply to jurisdictions encompassed by the coverage formula prescribed in Section 4B. The coverage formula was originally designed to encompass jurisdictions that engaged in egregious voting discrimination in 1965, and Congress updated the formula in 1970 and 1975. In Shelby v. Holder, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the, the coverage formula as unconstitutional, reasoning that it was no longer responsive to current conditions. The court did not strike down Section 5, but without a coverage formula, Section 5 is unenforceable. Uh, so I did not do any type of scholarly research that was from our trusty friend, Wikipedia, but I felt like it was a really good high-level overview of uh, the Voting Rights Act, the history, and the changes that happened um, with Shelby v. Holder. So um, I'm going to go into the questions, and um, Anthony, I want to lead off with you. Um, so in 2013, the Roberts Court in a 5-4 decision decided that Section 4B is unconstitutional because the coverage formula is based on data that's over 40 years old, um, making it long, no longer responsive to current needs, is what the court says. Um, striking down Section 4 essentially also eliminated Section 5, which focuses on jurisdictions with a heavy history of racial discrimination being required to obtain approval prior to change in voting laws. Shortly after these key provisions were amended, several jurisdictions moved to tighten regulations on voting. So my question to you, um, should it be left up to jurisdictions to create their own policies and procedures for voting, or should it be a federal statute that each state has to follow? Sure. Um, there is a truism in politics that all politics is local, and this is especially the case when we're talking about something like voting procedures. A federal statute, if there was one, would have to work equally well in Kotzebue, Alaska, where the entire town is packed into a space that's only maybe a block wide block in size and it has to work equally well as a precinct in the Bronx or also in a county in Montana that has 500 people in it who are spread across hundreds of square miles. That's difficult and it's reasonable for people in those places to know what would work best for them um, so long as everybody has equal access to the vote and that's where the federal government has the ability to step in. That's also what I think the Voting Rights Act did. Um, was it create that federal oversight, especially in areas that have historically um, not uh, had equal voting opportunities for people. So, I mean, I do think that state procedures or local procedures make a lot of sense, but uh, there, needs, does, there should be a federal standard of access. Great. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Seth? I, I had about the same uh, thoughts as well. I, I personally don't mind allowing jurisdictions to make their own policies around voting. Um, for the reasons that Tony just stated. Um, but I think these procedures that are suppressing the vote need to be uh, quickly mowed down and uh, that would come with the most stringent of federal oversight. Um, and like, how would you, what type of federal oversight would you recommend? Like, do you have a, a framework or any type of like suggestions that you would like to see implemented? Um, I don't, I, I like the idea of campaign finance reform, um, although that's less limited, uh, us pertaining to sort of uh, voting access. Um, I, I like uh, I like the idea of redistricting reform as well. I'm not sure if that could be done at a federal level, but I think uh, there should be something done about that. Okay, great. Uh, one second. 
Steph, we'll go to you with the second question. So um, when the Supreme Court struck down free clearances in Shelby v. Holder, the court reasoned that the coverage formula was out of date, but the majority of Congress did not agree with this assessment. Um, so how do you think we can reconcile both branches of government having diametrically different interpretations of the law? I think this kind of cuts down to what the judiciary is supposed to do and what they tend to do in most cases, except for in the cases that uh, they might have a politically different opinion on, such as this one. Um, but I mean, the judiciary is in theory supposed to err on the side of the legislature, so long as the statute's not unconstitutional. Um, I mean, granted, the you know, they deemed here that the preclearance uh, was unconstitutional. So I guess it is what it is. But uh, however, you know, Congress should act and, and, and it's up to them to act. And, and it's up for states to step into where they can to make sure that voting access is as broad as possible. And, um, you know, but looking at where we're at as a nation, I don't think and I don't expect that to happen. Yeah, I, I think that this is kind of one of those um those things it's it's been 50 plus years since voting rights act was passed both parties have had control of congress during that time both parties um you know could have uh, updated the data um updated the um specific jurisdictions that that needed to be subject to preclearance and you know you hate to talk about both siderisms but in this case somebody in that 50 year period could have have updated this so the supreme court like probably wasn't wrong that the coverage formulas are out of date um considering how old they are but that doesn't mean that a coverage formula isn't needed and it's congress's responsibility to create that formula um not the court's responsibility what do you think shall yeah, I don't know, because it's it's all very interesting. And I, I do think that you're correct, Tony, in that, you know, both parties have had the opportunity to kind of um, ensure that um, everyone was enfranchised um, and, and able to vote. And I don't necessarily think that um, I do think that there should be some type of preclearance. It, it, what is stunning to me is just how quickly certain jurisdictions changed um their their voting um, i mean i mean I, I guess the right to vote once this was struck down it was like within um i guess and i don't know if this was in the article if it was based on some of the research that i did like but there was in in north carolina it was like like surgical precision that they said that um you know how the legislature enacted certain um procedures to disenfranchise people um and so it, it, it's interesting i'd I don't feel like some of the things are unreasonable to ask, but then, uh, you know, when you think about it, um, you know, everyone has a right to vote and you, you kind of wonder why are certain people trying to keep people from voting? Like, what is their specific reason? And I don't necessarily want to necessarily get into that, but it's, um, it, it has to be for a reason, like you did to me, I don't know. Um, so the next question is, oh, and this is an interesting one. Um, there were only nine states and 55 small jurisdictions that were required to get federal preclearance due to their history of disenfranchising voters. Um, so does it seem appropriate for all states to be subjected to preclearance to ameliorate the disparate treatment that only a few states participated in? 
Tony, what are your thoughts? So this is one where actually I would say that it is reasonable for all states to have to participate in preclearance. The nine states that had to have preclearance, they were all southern states. The jurisdictions were southern jurisdictions, and that had to do with the 1960s. But some of the worst racism I have witnessed um, didn't happen in the south. It happened up in Alaska. And it seems to me that if, um, if, if we are going to say we're going to treat all of the states equally then I would rather err on the side of all states having federal oversight because that's more likely to get um, the right to vote or the ability to vote out to the most people rather than all states not have oversight. I, uh, I agree with that as well. Um, I, I pulled out this book. Um, well, firstly, I think states themselves, even you know, not Shelby, Alabama, so to speak, in the 60s, but all states even today are pretty... Um, you know, fickle in, in their voting. And, and there's this book called The Democracy Index by uh, Heather Gherkin, who's a, a Yale law constitutional uh, professor. And she kind of, in the book, she kind of lays out this, this plan to make America's elections better. And, and one section, uh, chapter of it kind of lays out the states. And um, in 2000, well, in 2007, the uh, Election uh, Assistance Commission tried to get voting information from all the states of the union. And um, then she, in the book, she ranks the score of the information sent back to the EAC from those states. And if you look at the bottom, uh, well, the bottom 11, five of the 11 are today swing states. You know, there's Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Virginia, Wisconsin, and New Hampshire all in the bottom 11 uh, of you know, the percent of information requested by the EAC that was sent back to them from the states. So, I mean, a lot of these, especially northern swing states, are uh, you know, not reporting information like how many ballots were thrown out, you know, turnout, uh, voting machines, all, poll workers, all kinds of different um, metrics and, and data. And I think we, we might want to ask ourselves why that is. That is interesting. Um, you have any thoughts on why that might be? Uh, I think um, because they don't want the EAC to know quite uh, how the elections are being run from the ground level uh, and what the voting turnout is, because that would require probably some sort of action on increasing or decreasing voter suppression, increasing turnout. And, uh, you know, uh, where they say that light is the best disinfectant and uh, in the swing states where it all kind of hinges on when less than 50% of the, the data requests is being, uh, being given back, you know, what's, uh, what's the infection, you know, behind that 50%. This, that, was, this was all voluntary that they would have sent the information back. Yeah. Yeah. Some other States like North Dakota, Delaware, they sent back almost all um, the information requested Florida, even sent it all back Ohio, 95%, more than 95% of the information requested. Um, then it goes all the way down to Alabama expectedly is, 21% of the information, but Pennsylvania, uh, you know, one of the original 13 was 41% of the uh, information. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to like, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant and, and where elections are decided, we, we tend to see quite a bit of mud, I think. And uh, it'd be nice to see what's really going on and, and what the actual data implies. Wow. Okay. Um, so, uh, Tony, I'll go to you. Um, 
Chief uh, Justice Roberts wrote in the majority's opinion that coverage today is based on decades old data and eradicated practices. Um, he goes on to say that um, these practices were necessary in 1965, but such disparities do not exist today. There may be some validity to what he was thinking since there aren't outright prejudicial practices that keep people from voting. But was it appropriate for the court to depend on such a narrow definition of eradicated practices as a benchmark to protect people's rights to vote? Oh, I would go further. I would say that you cannot hold a position that um, coverage today is based on decades old data and eradicated practices and say that and have a clean conscience. Um, decades old data, sure, but practices are not eradicated. I think that as you brought forward with the North Carolina case that the article discussed in section two, um, the proponents of those voting changes didn't even pretend that their changes were not racially motivated. They essentially said, it doesn't matter why they're motivated. We're allowed to try and bring them forward now. Um, and so the, uh, um, so with, with with that in mind, no, I don't think it was appropriate for the, for the court to, court to say that. You know, we don't have uh, poll taxes anymore, but we have poll tax like activities. Um, we don't have literacy tests, but we in some cases have literacy test like activities that prevent people from voting. And um, you know, so just because the practice this change its name doesn't mean it's been eradicated or doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the VRA, the way it was kind of constructed was to look at the intent behind the, the you know, prohibitive procedures for voting. And, it, it, you know, Justice Ginsburg had a great quote about this uh, in terms of the Shelby opinion is that, you know, to, to gut the VRA is like throwing away your umbrella in the rain because you're not getting wet. I mean, okay, so it's based on old data of eradicated practices, but why were those practices eradicated? Because uh, they were made illegal and uh, they they had a sort of a, a measure to protect against these different uh, voter suppression techniques from being instituted in, in, especially in the districts that showed to use them. And so for, uh, you know, for, for someone like Roberts to kind of use, a, you know, such a narrow definition of eradicated practices without taking into context the situation. I mean, it's like, you know, either his sense of reasoning isn't, you know, as strong as it should be for the seat he's in, or, you know, he's kind of twisting the logic or intentionally, you know, omitting some pieces of the logical chain to, you know, con construct some argument that he wants to uh, see made law. And, uh, to Robert's credit, I, I tend to lean toward the second point, but yeah. I think it's kind of like, you know, what uh, the Chief Justice was saying was kind of like pie in the sky thinking that, you know, you want you want to believe that, um, you know, these disparities don't exist today, but they absolutely do. Um, I mean, just thinking about my grandmother who, um, you know, she was born in a shack in Rock Hill, South Carolina. She didn't have a birth certificate. Um, you know, she didn't have this type of documentation, and I don't even think she voted until 2008. Um, and I, I remember her, you know, like having to go through that process. She didn't have to, she already had like a, an ID and everything like that, but it was after she voted, like having to go through the process of trying to get her birth certificate and things like that. And I think about like all the, the folks who, who are older, uh, you know, who might not have that type of documentation on file, 
and don't have it readily available and how, you know, states in the South, like Georgia, North Carolina or whatever, are using that to try to disenfranchise these people. And I just don't think that that type of um, thinking really is appropriate for, for not not appropriate, it's not realistic for how, you know, certain things are. So, um, again, I think it was just kind of like pie in the sky thinking like this is how we want it to be. But I don't think that it was actually realistic. And I guess I don't doubt that, um, you know, that that the people in high level positions in government are you know, intelligent and successful or whatever. But but they and they tend to come from uh, different sections of society, uh, both in race and economic status and all kinds of things. And and when they look at the world, they tend to see sort of like the the middle uh, of the world and and where things fail and where things fray are at the ends. And so to to sit here and, and say that, okay, well, they're eradicated and so it's all well and fine now, it's like, well, you got to look at the reality of the situation here, guy, and you got to kind of step outside your yeah, I don't know, ivory tower or whatever you want to call it for a second here. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, Seth, this is for you. An important note in the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby did not find Section 5 unconstitutional and only focused on the coverage formula in Section 4B. The Supreme Court is essentially leaving it up to Congress to enact another constitutional preclearance requirement. Um, this hasn't been done to date, and I think we already did kind of touch on this, but do you, what would your predictions be to whether or not we'll see this happen in any time in the future? So my theory on this is that it, it would be in the Democratic Party's best interest um, to do something like this, because if if they were to take the House, Senate and the presidency, especially in the upcoming election, which is possible, um, I think um, sort of the the idea is pretty blatant in American politics that um, the the majority of Americans tend to lean Democratic. I was looking at some Pew Research numbers uh, earlier today, and um, when you start factoring in the independents, forty nine percent of voters lean Democratic and forty four lean Republican. So that's I mean in today's margins, five percent is pretty substantial. And um, you know, so what they could do would be to solidify power for the next generation or two by just simply passing uh, statutes that expand voter access, redistricting reform, campaign finance reform to make uh, the vote more um, direct and transparent. And and I think what we're seeing today is this sort of rise in, in uh, authoritarianism um, as the sort of last, uh, last gasp on how um, the, the more authoritarian uh, leaning, and that's non-political, which is like kind of uh, in political theory, at least leaning uh, authoritarians are kind of using the system to um, suppress votes so that the, the vote is not as representative as it could be. So um, in short, I think by we could see this happen in the future if, uh, if we see a supermajority from one party or the other. Tony? Yeah, um, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of pessimistic on the concept of or the importance of fairness in this country as the way that things have been developing. Um, my concern is that, like, the Republicans have controlled the Senate. They could have redone this at any point, even in ways that would have benefited the Republicans, but they didn't. Before that, the Democrats did hold the Senate and the presidency at one point, and they could have done this at any point and they didn't. And um, 
you know, I can't see the present incarnation of the Republican Party pushing for voting equality and access. My fear would be that the Democrats, if they, you know, succeed in winning the presidency and the and a majority in the Senate would say, well, we got this without having a redone Voting Rights Act. So we're going to work on these other things that are important to us now. And as a result, this kind of fundamental fairness of our system kind of goes by the wayside. I always think if you have to twist um, the vote and suppress the vote and twist the rules of the game to to stay in power, I mean, you know, how much power do you actually have? Well, Julius Caesar or- you know, Marcus Rose would say you have plenty. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose on its face, yeah, you have, you have, uh, but the system starts to sway, you know, and you don't represent uh, the votes in, in a democracy. You know, you you see the system start to uh, to slump. I think, which will, yeah, is, is not a good outcome. So long as you. I was, uh, I think at first, like, I was kind of like Seth and I was like optimistic about it. But I feel like the realist uh, is probably more what Tony is saying. Like, um, again, I feel like voting is a fundamental right that, you know, everyone should participate. But I also feel like um, the right to do show, to do, to do show, to do so should be expanded um, so that there aren't hindrances, you know, like um, allow people to, uh, not just have it on one day, like open it up to have it on, you know, a, a longer period of time, make it a federal holiday. Make, I feel like if if, uh, if Democrats were serious about wanting to expand voting, they had the opportunity to do so and they just kind of let it fall by the wayside. And now, you know, you kind of see the ramifications of Shelby and how that is impacting the party. Um, but I also feel like, you know, that is a real thing that is front and centered. But again, like, if the Democrats get in power, I'm not sure that voting rights are going to be at the top of the agenda because I feel like people take for granted that, um, you know, certain constituencies are going to continue to support them um, until they don't have that support anymore. Um, so I feel like, you know, I, I, there are certain constituencies that I feel like Republicans will not reach out to. There are certain constituencies that Democrats take for granted. Um, and And I feel like, you know, you need to cultivate and water the flower. You need to, you know, make sure those constituencies feel heard, that they feel valued, you know, that their vote isn't just important around election time. And, you know, you see all this information now, you know, talk about people being disenfranchised, but, you know, it's not just important in an election year. This is important 365 days a year, every single day. And I don't necessarily know that it's going to change I mean, I, I don't know. I, I hope it does. I hope it will, but you know, we'll see. And, and I'm um, interested. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Sure. I'm. I'm. Um, I'm interested to see in the upcoming, we'll say, decade, how much of a gut check on the sort of fragility of democracy was, uh, you know, was the past four years. And um, and I think that if we do see a lot of reform, especially in terms of, you know, what I was just talking about, about the voting suppression and disenfranchisement and campaign finance and things, I think that would um, sort of be evidence that, you know, we did have a gut check. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I do agree with your your statements that, um, that Democrats could have solidified this a long time ago, but I don't know, we'll see. Um, so I guess this is the last question. Um, the title race to the bottom seems kind of harsh, but Katz explains this metaphor as the statutory prohibition is not simply narrowed, but transformed. 
What was a nuanced inquiry into the opportunities for political participation as it's reduced to an ever-sinking floor with jurisdictions inoculating each other by adopting increasingly restrictive electoral practices? Like, again, this language seems so, like, strong to me, but I wanted to kind of get you guys' thoughts on this. Like, is it appropriate? Uh, you know, is she being an alarmist? Like, you know, what do you think? So I thought it was it was appropriate. I mean, there's the concept of a race to the bottom um, in economics where, you know, you have a bunch of companies making essentially the same thing. Well, the person who is able to produce more cheaper, you know, they, they keep dropping their prices and everybody has to follow suit. And then pretty soon everybody's dropped their price. But in the process, like the quality has gone down also. Right here, um, she contrasted it to a race to the top where like voting access uh, expands and expands and expands uh, because of a one way ratchet effect where, you know, if you have a expanded uh, voting rights system, you can't go back on that, essentially. Um, the race to the bottom is that, well, you don't have to be any better than your neighbors. And as long as your neighbors are going to more and more restrictive systems, then you can have a more and more restrictive system. Um, so I thought it was appropriate language. Um, and, you know, I think that both are forms of slippery slope arguments, and those very rarely play out all the way to the end, right? You start down the slippery slope, and then societal factors cause things to change, and you never reach that horrible thing at the end of it. Um, you know, so hopefully we do maintain some semblance of voting equality um you know in this country um hopefully it improves um you know that that would be i i hope that's the realistic look yeah i agree i, I think the language was uh actually spot on i i the way i view voter suppression is sort of like um you know, in the United States the the people are the sovereign and and they voice uh, or exercise their kind of sole power um, by way of the vote. And so any uh, infringement of that right is essentially, I mean, if you want to look at it, you could, you could say it's treason um, by trying to usurp the power from the sovereign, so to speak. And and uh, I think, especially in terms of upholding democracy, you have to be um, as, as uh, linguistically strong as you can be. And and yeah, I mean, like like Tony was saying about the race to the bottom and the ratchet effect, we're going to see this happen, I suspect, um, if we're not already. And um, I, I think uh, pulling some teeth out of the Voting Rights Act was uh, was was quite the mistake. Yeah, I agree with you um, in, on your last point. Like it was quite the mistake, and um, I would like to see it reconciled. Um, I, I think that the language is also is is, uh, is appropriate um, because, again, like I was saying earlier, I mean, like this, we all should have a right to vote. Um, we all should be able to exercise that vote, and it shouldn't be um, target, targeted with surgical precision um, for certain groups to be able to cast their vote in others. Um, you know, their votes not to be counted or heard. Um, so. With that said, we're, I would just like to encourage everyone to please exercise your right to vote um, coming up, uh, regardless of who you're voting for. Um, you know, it's important to participate in democracy. Um, as law students, I think that, you know, we are in a certain special position to, you know, kind of encourage people to uh, uphold institutions. And this is one that I really think that is fundamental, you know, to our democracy. So that's really why I wanted to kind of have this conversation and talk about this article. So thank you guys.
Okay. And with that, we are just about out of time. Thanks again to our panel, Shenley and Seth. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. If you want to tell us why we're wrong, you can Twitter at us at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. Audio post-processing was by Muhammad Salim, and we'll see you next time. Go vote.